Here we go. Family feud time. Name something you might eat with crackers. Soup. Cheese. What? Peanut butter. Oh, you guys are so smart. What they said, sliced meat, chili, peanut butter, cheese, and soup. This one, next one. Name some legal ways to get rich. Emphasis, legal. Okay. Work. Okay. But this is quickly. You see the last word? Lottery. <laughs> Changed your tune, didn't you? Uh, other ways to get rich quickly. What's that? Investments. Inheritance. Anything else? Marriage. I want to ask. Don't ask, right? Don't ask. Okay, here's what they said. Get a job, gamble, buy Bitcoin. This, this thing's dated, okay? Then they said save money and then invest. Where's the inheritance? That's the quick way, right? Here's this one. Name something it is easier to catch than catching a man or a woman. A cold? Okay. What else? Fish. <laughs> anything else we got? Ken, it's up here. Okay. Um, anything else you got? Here's what they said. Frisbee. A bus. Fish. Cold or flu and a ball. Okay, now some of these get a little bit weird. Name something people ride that might cause them to get sick. What's that? A boat? An airplane? Roller coaster? And any ride in amusement park? Okay. Tilt-a-whirl, said Ferris wheel, plane, car, boat ship, and roller coaster. Name a food you might lick. Lollipop, ice cream. Okay, anything else? This is strange. The answers here befuddle me. Here's the answers. An envelope. Okay, okay. Do you think the way I think? It's not on the food menu. Okay. And so then popsicle. And then we go back to weird. A stamp. Okay. Bob, have you been dieting on stamps lately? Uh. <laughs> then they have the lollipop, and then they have the ice cream. And so we want to get accurate. We're in the book of Revelation. There's lots of weird things that people talk about it, like lolly, you know, stamps and envelopes being licked. There's lots of stuff that you can read about the book of Revelation that are kind of bizarre. And so what we want to talk about is what is accurate in the book of Revelation. And hopefully you would uh, have the same conclusions that I did. We're in chapter 4. Chapter 4 starts with, after this I looked and there was a door open in heaven. That is very significant because at the end of chapter 3 he says there is a closed door and Jesus is knocking the door and open it. And then all of a sudden he has this vision and this vision is of this door in heaven. John verse 1 then hears a voice like a trumpet. The same thing is described about Jesus' voice being like a trumpet just in chapter 1 and verse 10. The voice says to John, come up hither and immediately he is enabled to come up into heaven and have this vision and see a lot of the book of Revelation and get a lot of that information. So what happens is he makes the comment, I'm going to show you the things that shall be hereafter. This is the beginning 
of the prophecy. The previous chapters are not the prophetic section of the book, but this is now giving us some of the future events, some of the forecasts, some of the prophecies that are coming up. So we have an idea of where we're starting in chapter 4, and as he gets there and he looks, immediately John starts saying, okay, what do I see in heaven when I get there and I get my eyes open, get adjusted to the brilliance or whatever, and all of a sudden the first thing that catches his attention in chapter 4 is what? What's the first thing he, he focuses his attention on? He says he sees a throne. Now, again, if you weren't with us last week, we just talked about this quickly, that this seems to be a recurring word through the book of Revelation and uh, comes up a lot. I forgot to do this last week. It wasn't in my notes. I thought it was. And apparently when I was doing slides, I erased this part so I didn't share this with you. The person on the throne was brilliant like Jasper. The understanding that most commentators is the Jasper of that time. The understanding is like clear like crystal or like a diamond. And so this person is radiating. And then sardine, which is that idea that it's going to be a red radiation coming from this individual or from the throne. There are, the, uh, there are mentions of these exact same stones on the high priest's garment. Do you remember the vest that the high priest had? He had the 12 stones. The first one was the stone that we would call jasper. The last one is the stone that we would call uh, here the sardine stone. And so all of this is like the first and the last of the 12 tribes. They're all included within this picture. I don't know any more significance from that. He's obviously God the Father. We pointed out this last week that he is identified as the Almighty. He is also pointed out to be different than Jesus who shows up and approaches him in the next chapter and takes the scroll from his hand. So this is God the Father on the throne. What appearance that John is able to understand. And then he talks about this throne around the throne as if it's totally circular. There's a rainbow. And immediately when you think of God in a rainbow, your mind goes back to the flood, okay, and the promise of God, that God has been faithful with that. Around the throne are 24 elders. We mentioned last week that these 24 elders who are, he describes them in white robes. He says they have crowns, stephanoi, not diadem. Those are two different words for crowns in the Bible. Diadem are the kingly crown. Stephanoi are awards like Olympic crowns made more of laurel or something of that sort. These folk don't have kingly crowns. They have Stephanoi, like awards given. And so these people are there. The 24 are worshiping. They're casting their Stephanoi. They're singing. When we read in chapter 5, they are praising God that they have been redeemed from all nations and tribes and tongues and peoples. So when we start identifying them, this can't be Jewish only. They can't be 24 representing the Jews because all tribes, tongues, nations have been, they've been redeemed. So uh, my conclusion, and uh, you, you know, if you have a different, that's fine, but uh, there, are, there are multiple uh, assumptions of who this is or interpretations. I think it's the church pictured by the 24 elders, and that's going to be my consistent uh, teaching all the way through, that they're redeemed from every nation. The church is made to be kings and priests, First Peter chapter 2. The uh, crowns are the same crowns that we've been promised and told that when we are at the judgment seat of Jesus Christ and he distributes Stephanoi to us for soul winning, um, enduring trials, 
those who are uh, good preach uh, pastors, those who are sharing the gospel, those who are um, uh, looking and loving his appearing. Those crowns that he talks about in those passages, it's the same word, Stephanoi, given to the church peoples for their faithfulness. We're told that one day we will rule with Christ, and so these elders are sitting on thrones that are around the throne of God, so they have some authority given to them, and they're dressed in the same garb that is described when he talks about the churches in chapter 2 and 3 who are dressed will be dressed in white robes, the same exact wording. And uh, then what caught his attention is there's flashes of lightning and thunder coming from this throne. And we pointed out that that's got to be, okay, catching the different senses, an attention getter to the individual. Um, they indicate power, as we talked about, and you mentioned your reactions. And then there's the seven burning lamps. We touched on this briefly, and I did a lot more study on it, and it still is a difficult uh, subject for me. You probably will understand it better. We read in verse 5 at the second half, There were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of the Lord. At, he mentions again in chapter, uh, chapter 5, go to verse 6, where he says, I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and the four beasts in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain, seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And so the, the, the question gets, okay, uh, what are the? Why is he talking about seven spirits? And so some say it's seven lampstands, and it's the same as chapter one, but it's not. There, he, he defines the lampstands in chapter one at the last verse. He says the lampstands are the churches. So he's identified them. They can't be the same thing. He says here there are seven that he says burning lamps that are different than the lampstands, and these are the spirit of God. And so, how do we figure that out? Because when we start talking about the seven spirits, how many Holy Spirits are there? There's one. It's very clear in Scriptures. There is one Spirit, one God, one Lord, one Spirit. And uh, he identifies that elsewhere. And so, we have that same idea of the seven spirits of the Lord, or the, spirits of, the Spirit of God, mentioned in these several different passages. So as we put them together, we're trying to think through, okay, what are they? Okay, so we have one Spirit identified. The Holy Spirit is one, okay, as the Scriptures have said. And so we start thinking, okay, what can this possibly be? The uh, seven is a number of completion. Okay, it shows up a lot in Scriptures. Seven and God acting within sevens. And so it's... Uh, you know, as understood, it's the fullness or it's the completion idea if we, if we hold to that number concept. In Isaiah, here's what the verse says, and he talks about we, he's seeing the seven virtues or spirits aligned with, and he talks about the spirit of the Lord, the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel, spirit of might, spirit of knowledge, spirit of the fear of the Lord. He does the same thing in Zechariah when he says that the Spirit of God is, has the seven eyes of the Lord. And so the conclusion that most have is that, okay, this is a, the Holy Spirit, but he's being presented in a non-physical form, like, like Jesus is a physical form, but the, the Spirit is a spirit. He's represented by flames in tongues of fire in what other account in Scripture? Do you remember? There's an account when the Spirit comes upon people. 
In Pentecost, you got the flames and the tongues of fire. So some are, are, are assuming that this is the Spirit of God, and all this descriptive of the seven is you know, all, with all of his majesty, all of his might, all of his ability. If you look at some of these, these uh, words that are used in Isaiah, those are some of what he says is going to happen or be provided to us when the Spirit comes and indwells us. We will have knowledge. We will have understanding. We will have you know, more of that, that power to be able to serve. That's what he told the disciples, is once the Spirit comes, then you're going to have more boldness and more ability to do greater works than what he even did. And so the conclusion is this is the Spirit of God represented not in multiple, multiple different form, uh, characters, but one person that appears in fullness and completion with all of these different attributes and abilities. And so uh, that, that seems to be a consistent concept that, that the Spirit at times is represented by multiple flames, such as in Pentecost. Same Spirit, but each one had their own flame descending upon them. And so that's the, con- the conclusion is, by most scholars, is He's seeing in heaven God the Father, and right by God the Father is God the Holy Spirit. That's in that throne area as well. And so uh, he will become closely, as we see in chapter 5, the Son will be also, the Spirit is going to be upon the Son as well, which makes sense in Scripture. We talked about the sea of glass, okay? We talked about this last week, what it was, a literal ocean or not. Same vision that uh, Aaron and the elders and Moses had, that there was like this vast floor that was crystal, like a sea of glass that was radiating. Uh, there in Exodus, it was like sapphire. He calls it like the sky that in its brilliance. And so we don't understand all of what it is other than God's majesty at this throne, every, every aspect above him, around him, below him. Everything is radiating glory and honor and just absolute magnificence in this vision of God. There's the four living beasts. This is where it gets a little bit more complicated. And before the throne, there was a sea of glass, and in the midst of the throne and round about the throne, there were four beasts full of eyes before and behind, and the first beast was like a lion, the second beast a calf, the third beast had a face as a man, the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. The four beasts each had six wings about them. They were full of eyes within. They rested not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. Um, on the notes I put for creatures, because the wording in the original is is the idea of created beings. Creatures are created ones. Uh, it's translated in the King James as beast, which immediately affects people's interpretation. Like, when you think beast, what do you think of? Terrifying? Okay, something... Okay, um, you know, you think of, you know, something that's ugly, horrible, aggressive, meaning harm. That's, that's typically how we define beast. And so he's, ta- and, and, and it will, when the word beast is literally ta- translated later on, the beast like the devil, then it is that evil. But here it's the created ones. And uh, some of you have different translations, and some of you will have creatures or beings. Some of you, like say, with King James, we have beasts. Um, He's described what they look like. They're bizarre in their appearance compared to what we are typically used to. And so we've already talked about, we know that what they're doing is they're perpetually praising and saying, 
holy, holy, holy. What's an interesting study is to take the three or four times where you get a real vision of heaven. And it's fascinating to do do this, okay? And in fact, we're going to do it for just a second. Is we're going to go and jump back into the Old Testament. There's in Isaiah, it happens twice in Ezekiel. And then you have Revelation 6, where the, the prophet, whether it be Isaiah or Ezekiel or John, uh, the apostle, they have a vision of the, of the throne of heaven. They see that inner part of heaven. And they describe what's there. It's really interesting to make a comparison between those multiple texts. And you would, you would assume you're going to find what between four different texts? Consistency? Watch. Watch how it does it. Okay, so we have the heavenly throne in Revelation. We go in Isaiah, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up. His train from his robe filled the heaven. Is there a rainbow in the Old Testament accounts? He says, like the appearance of a rainbow in a cloud on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. So we read about thunder and lightning. What does Isaiah Ezekiel say? Ezekiel says, As the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals, like the appearance of torches. There, the fire was bright, and out of the fire went lightning. And the living creatures ran back and forth in the appearance that they were, they were doing the lightning. Okay, so we go a little bit further. The Spirit of God, the, the seven flames and the Spirit of God, And each one went straight forward. They went wherever the Spirit wanted them to go, and they did not. So the Spirit is right there directing the individuals. The crystal glass, the sea that we saw, likeness of the firmament above the heads of the living creatures was like the color of an awesome crystal stretched out over their heads, which Moses says it's below, but almost like the sky. So this brilliance is is all-encompassing. Four living creatures. We go to Ezekiel. Also from within it came the likeness of four living creatures. This was their appearance. They had the likeness of a man. Six wings. Isaiah. Above it stood the seraphim. Each one had six wings. Two covered his face, two he covered his feet, and two he flew. There, uh, the lion, the calf, the man, the eagle, on the, on the appearance of the faces. In Ezekiel, the likeness of their faces, each had the face of a man, the face of a lion, and I'm doing it backwards here, the uh, face of an ox and the face of an eagle. So they had a different face on all different sides of their head. But they're there, okay? We also have, each one had four faces. Again, he says the first face of the face of a cherub. By the way, we've already read different terms. He, Isaiah used seraphim, and now what does Ezekiel use? Cherub, Okay. The second face was the face of a man, the face of the lion, the fourth the face of the eagle. The cherubim were lifted up, and there was a living creature I saw. This is what I saw by the river Chibar. They're singing. We read in, uh, in chapter 4 that they're singing, Holy, Holy, Holy. Isaiah, the one cried to another, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So we come back and say, okay, there is a consistency in all these different accounts. But it brings us back, okay, who are the beings then in Revelation 4? Well, I've pointed out already that they're called the living beast or creatures. In Isaiah, they're called seraphim. In Ezekiel, they're called cherubim. And the different words in the Hebrew have a different significance. It's the burning ones, the brilliant ones, the lit up ones is the seraphim. In in Ezekiel, the cherubim are guardians. What are they guarding? 
does God need guarding? Okay. What could they be guarding? Any thoughts? I don't have a conclusion. Okay. Okay. The gate? Well, these are by the throne. They're further on. They're further inside. Anybody have a thought? I don't. I think that, that I said I don't have a thought, but that's where my, my brain jumps the same way. We think alike. This, this is scary. <laughs> um, the guarding, I, it, I can't think of anything that they're guarding necessarily that could attack God. I know that you have guards usually in position. But even like our president, the guards them, it's not just for appearance sake. Do they have a legitimate reason to be guarding him? Yeah, for protection. I mean, who's going to attack God? So I wonder if the guarding isn't to keep others at bay or at distance so they don't... I mean, seeing God, what is the typical Old Testament response? Yeah, yeah. And in fact, didn't he say in the Old Testament, Exodus, if anybody see me, he would die. And so Moses got to see the backside after God passed. And so it's, I don't know. Okay, uh, But the point is, those same creatures in the Old Testament, who, by the way, um, I, I, I didn't state this, who are the seraphim and the cherubim? What class of creation? Okay, they're not human. They're not animal. So what are they? Okay, they're the angelic class. And so if we're making the conclusions right then we would have to conclude that the same creatures doing some of the same things, but maybe with, a, with slight differences, these four living creatures fall into what class of creation? They are created ones. That's their name. Okay. So where, what classification would they be? Angelic. Okay, they would have to be angelic um, in that sense that they are part of that angel class that is different and distinct from us. Um, they're constantly praising and serving God. Now we read in chapter 5, just to jump ahead, when he's talking, and he says, um, let's do verse 8, chapter 5, just to jump ahead. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and the four and twenty elders fell down, having and they're, they're doing praising. Now jump down to verse 11. I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beast and the elders. So there is a distinction between the regular angels and these beasts. Which makes sense because there is a classification of angels. The cherubim and seraphim seem to be at a higher level in the Old Testament. And then he describes the normal angels as the number of them was... What do you have? 10,000. What do you have? 10,000 times 10,000. Thousands of thousands. Anybody have something different? Myriads and myriads? Okay. Um, we'll get to it. I don't, I don't think I have it right here. The, in, the, in the Greek language, the, the biggest number they had was 10,000. And so this is saying 10,000 times 10,000 with the idea that it's not a specific number. This was as far as he could go. It was just... Hebrews describes the number of angels as innumerable. And so this is a vast host of how many we'll, we'll talk about a little bit further. Okay? Um, they are not the ones in this passage in chapter 5 that are doing all the praising. 
There are others doing it. The 24 elders, for instance, they, they're praising as well. They sing praises to him. And we read what the, 20, the 24 elders, and they're singing the praises in verse 11. The 24 elders who cast the, throne, uh, the crowns at the throne, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? What does the church, what do they recognize? Why are they praising God? Verse 11. Okay, it's his creation. First and foremost, you have created all things, uh, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Okay, what is, what is um, God's highest plan for people that he, for like us? What is our, our, high, our most important thing to be doing? Bringing glory to God. Okay, bringing glory to God. That's why we were created. That's why we've been redeemed. That's why the Spirit lives within us. Therefore, whatsoever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the... Okay. And so he has that, that concept comes out. Uh, they give back the crowns that they had, they had been given for the rewards after the Bema seat. Why would you give them back? Let me, let me put it this way. So... I'm going to give Alice, if, if I were the Lord, okay, and that's a real stretch, I know. If I were the Lord and I give her a crown, why would I take it back from her? What's that? Okay, okay. By the way, my illustration's flawed. What did I say that's... that's he took them back, okay? He, I said he took them back. That's not the, the portrait here. The portrait is... She willingly gives them. Okay. And you're saying one of the reasons is they feel like they don't deserve them? Okay. Um, I would think... Well, let, me, let me just pause for a second before we finish that one. Okay, you're John. You see heaven. And you have... what we've, We haven't gone all the way through it yet. But your... How many of your senses are stimulated? Obviously the sight. Okay. Is your hearing stimulated? What are you hearing? Are you hearing the thunder and the uh, the thunder and your you're hearing the voices? You're hearing the praises. Okay. What about feeling? Do you ever feel thunder? Okay. Okay. So you know, could you feel? Do you ever feel? Do you ever feel somebody driving down the road, pull up next to you, and you feel their radio, their stereo? Yes. No. You can, you, can, you can get the reverberation. Is there things reverberating in heaven? Okay, got the angels, you know, doing their wings. You've got the music, the songs. So what would you, you know, put yourself there just for a second. What would be your emotional reaction? What would you say? Overcome? Awestruck? Anything else? This isn't, there's no right answer here. You'd fall down in fear? What'd you say? Okay. Would there be any rejoicing in your heart? What's that? What would you want to do? Okay. Okay. Do, do you ever, do you ever, you, you would go to concerts sometimes. When you're sitting there and you can sing, okay, you're sitting in the concert, do you ever sit there and listen to these choral groups and you start wanting to walk up there and join in on it. Yeah, it ever happened to you? Yeah? Anybody, anybody, um, 
you're hearing some music. There's one of the songs the choir does. I forget which one it is. But they do, and it's just like, I don't want to just sit here. I got the words. I want to sing with it. Did anybody get caught up that way? Okay, I think that's what's happening here, isn't it? That there's praising, and all of a sudden, more people are praising, and then there's, and it's like, I want it too. Okay, I want to get in on it. And it's just, oh, it's got to be fascinating how that must feel. You know, that response. Okay, now, think this through. How do we normally picture and portray heaven? When we talk about people going to heaven, what do we normally portray to people that they're going to see when they get there? They're going to see family. Somebody, I heard a whisper. Streets of gold. Anything else? Pearly gates. What would you say? Okay. Anything else? Mansions. Okay. The jewels. Okay. Anything else that heaven is presented as? Okay. Who are we meeting? Heroes of the faith. Okay. Isn't it interesting? And, I, and are all those other things true? Are they a part of heaven? And are, will they be part of our experience? Are we going to see productivity? Will we see a perfect environment? Yeah, okay. Will we see no police? We, we, we don't need them in heaven. Okay. Will we see no politicians? <laughs> see, that one always gets us. That, yeah. Uh, and it's, so we look at those things, but what I, just, it just struck me. When John saw heaven, what was the first thing he focused on? The throne. The first thing that got his attention was wowsy. Okay? And I understand now, this is a different... I'm going to really make this hard okay, and confusing. There are different heavens... Now you're looking like me, I'm a heretic. Okay. In the Bible, there are different heavens. You know, the word is used. There, why did I open up this box? Okay. The, the first heaven, the sky, the clouds. The second heaven, the, the solar system, uh, space, the stars, whatever, you know, everything theirs. What's the third heaven? Where God is residing. Now, where God is residing, we're going to go and reside with him. But also, that phase of heaven is going to, at some time, there's going to phase in that heaven that there's going to become the new Jerusalem coming down to a renewed earth. And that will be heaven for how long? Uh, not the new earth, the renewed earth. Did I say new earth? Yeah. Did, did I say somebody? I don't know. Somebody said new earth question mark and you're right it's not the 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 new jerusalem comes down to the renovated earth am i confusing you even more okay so that and how long will that will that last okay a thousand years okay and then what's going to be a new heaven and a new earth okay so we have different phases where you know does that mean God's throne is going to come down to earth during the full thousand years? Or could he still remain there, but Jesus is here? Okay. Um, so when we talk about heaven, 
you know, we have diff- some different aspects and they're not wrong, but I ju- it just caught me that John, the first thing that catches his attention when he talks about heaven is he's talking about not floating clouds. Okay, thank God we're not going to float on a cloud and strum a harp all day. Okay, okay. I say this and people look at me odd. I think that would be so boring. Okay, thank you. There's three of us in this room that think that now. Um, Heaven isn't this world of mists that spirits go through. And all of a sudden there's dark shadows. And you don't know. It's not that. It's a very majestic appearance that he sees. There's a throne. There's the bowing. There's the praising. He's seeing strange creatures. But the primary thing that catches his, his attention is what? It's not the things he's going to enjoy. It's... It, it, it's everything that surrounds around who? God. It's everything that's just, you know, the, the, the noise, everything is sent. The center of the picture, did you, did you catch how he did that? He says there's a throne, and then he builds out. Everything is building out in, the, in the, his description, right? Okay, there's a throne, then there's a rainbow, then there's the 24, then there's the beast, then there's the glassy sea and the seven spirits, but everything hovers around, and the primary thing is the person who's on the throne is God Almighty, which makes perfect sense to you and I. Who should be the center of our attention? Yeah, okay. So it just seems to fit so well. So how does it apply? Worship of God is totally appropriate even now. And every one of you is going to say amen to that. Okay, it's totally appropriate. Why is that? Because everything revolves around him. Even those great creatures, they're praising him. They're saying you are deserving deserving of this. It's, you know, you created us and that's going to impact us more and more when we stand. Okay, the, um, what do we hear about the unsaved people who refuse to bow the knee to Jesus Christ? What do we read in, in the book of Philippians? Every knee shall bow. Okay, so everybody one day is going to be, and they're going to bow. Why? Because they recognize at that moment, okay, don't you think we're going to have a greater recognition of his greatness? And it's going to impact us the same way. I mean, we would willingly bow to Jesus, yes? But don't you think we're going to say, you know, even more so, just, uh, just being impacted by that. And it's based on recognizing he's our creator, he's our sovereign. But for us, we go to chapter 5, what is the other thing that gets our singing ramped up even more? We read, we read it here just a few moments ago. And he says, verse 9 of chapter 5, then all of a sudden they sing a new song. And what is the song that they sing? You are worthy to take the book to that to that. Why? Why is Christ worthy and we're praising him? Not that he created us. He saved us. He saved us. He was slain. He has redeemed us. So you and I have double reasons why we're going to bow and praise. He's our creator. He's our redeemer. And if, and if we understand him as creator, what do we... It goes back to what you said about, um, Laura, uh, what you said about why we cast the crowns. What you said, because we don't feel worthy. Okay. So when we see God in his greatness, we will not feel worthy. And then we have, on top of it, Jesus says, you're allowed to be here. 
It's amazing, just amazing, okay? So how does it apply to us? And going back to where I kind of drifted off, casting their crowns, um, all that we have belongs to God. That's going to be one reason that we're casting. We recognize everything that we have belongs to God anyway. We are going to recognize that all we should be doing, by the way, is for his glory. You know, that it's not us. Um, I think full recognition, we're going to find out and we're going to be impacted. Anything we've done that's worth being commendable, who deserves the credit for it? God. I mean, somebody walks up to you and says, oh, you did such a good job raising your kids. And you're going, what? Do they know the same kids I have? Okay. You know, did you ever have that happen? Your kids are such good workers. And you're going, what kids are they talking about? They don't help at home, but they do a good job working for somebody else. So when, when, when and if somebody compliments you about, hey, you did a good job with your kids, what is your typical reaction? I, I don't think most of you go, thanks. I deserve that. I really did a good job. You wouldn't do that. Okay. I would think you wouldn't. What do we respond? How to typically would we respond? Yeah. <laughs> By the grace of God. It was God. It wasn't us. It was God. You know, anything that's accomplished, it was God. So when people come and they say, oh, you have such a great church. You have such a great church. My immediate response is, it's great people and it's God. Okay? It's, God gets the ultimate glory. You guys get the next set of glory in it. You know, we don't say to ourselves, yeah, I really am good. <laughs> you know, that's not, and so when we're given those, those crowns, we know he deserves the credit and above it. It's truth in each and every one of us. Don't you find this overwhelming? That this is what we're going to experience by God's grace. What do we deserve? Well, let's take it even further. What do we deserve for eternity? Hell. And he's giving us... It's amazing grace. Wow. Okay. Let's jump into chapter 5. Okay. Now, let, let me throw something at you that um, you may not be aware of. Some of you probably are. Chapters and verse headings, chapter divisions and verse headings, let's rephrase that. Verses, divisions, and chapter headings were not part of the original Bible. They were not inspired by God. Okay, they were put there by, by different scholars. Okay, so when the Bible was originally written, they, they didn't say Genesis 1.1. Genesis 1-2. It just, it was a letter. Okay? I don't think you do this with your emails, do you? Verse 1. Verse 2. Okay? Now, when I send texts and it redoes my text, it does that goofy stuff, but that's not my intent. And so when the Bible, Bible was originally written, it didn't have chapter headings. Which, by the way, what would, what would be any reason somebody would put chapter headings, chapter divisions in a Bible? What's that? Organization. What'd you say? Easy. Yeah. You organize it so that as people are jumping around, it's easier to get to a certain spot. Yes, no? If I say, turn to yeah, John 5.24, does that help you to have that number and that division? Okay. As opposed to, see, you're not the one. I, I think I'm the only one who does this. It was on this side of the page. 
I don't remember where, but it's over here. Okay? And if I said, turn to over here, okay, we would have a difficult time. And so somebody did this, okay, and it was done years before the King James Bible even. So uh, it was done by, actually by the Archbishop of Canterbury, an Anglican church member and scholar. He first put in the chapter headings. The chapter headings were the first divisions, and the first English Bible that showed up, uh, Wycliffe's, it had chapter divisions. It didn't have verse divisions. That comes later. And so they put them in starting in that time, and we assume years later without knowing that, we just assume they were always there. And that wasn't the case. But as more people, and it makes perfect sense, prior to Wycliffe's Bible, who had Bibles? Okay, basically the clergy. Do you remember? Wycliffe's is the first Bible put in common language. So now when you put the Bible in common language, does it make more sense that we're going to need some division and to know it better, to be able to study it? And so they're put there by fallible man, and there's nothing evil about them, but understand sometimes they're put, and they don't mean change of scenery. Sometimes they're put in places that is just a literary, this seems like a good spot to put one in. The chapter's getting too long just for ease of study. Let's put one here. And so between chapter 4 and 5, we don't change scenes in Revelation. We're talking the same scene. That's my point. It's, It's a continuation of the vision that he has. And so he's giving this continuation, and he sees now all of this majesty and all this greatness is going on and this wonder. But we get to chapter 5 and what emotion does John start feeling? Anybody remember just off the top of your head? He starts grieving and weeping. And he's talking about the same type of grief that Jesus had when Jesus looked over Jerusalem and he wept and said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem would have gathered you. And so it's deep. It's grief. How does he go from joy and adoration, experiencing and feeling that with the crowds, and all of a sudden now he's brokenhearted? It's interesting because it goes right with the vision. The next thing that happens in chapter 5, starting with verse 1, he says, I saw, and I saw, continuation, and I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne. What do you have? Okay. You, what did you read? What did you say? A book. What did you say? A scroll. How many of you have book in your Bible? How many have scroll? Which one is it? It's, it's yes. Okay, the answer is yes. Because it's the same thing. He sees more detailed. He's going to describe that there's this writing that some, that some of you have scroll, some of you have book, written within and on the backside, sealed with seven seals. And so now we get in that spot that this scroll is a biblion. Does that sound fam- any any familiarity? Okay, okay. So same word we get our Bible from. You know, something that's manuscripted, something that's that's um, at length. It's brought out and it's in the right hand of the throne sitter. He's identifying. So he's obviously honing in now. And not just all these details in the singing, he's getting a clear glimpse of the one sitting on the throne, and he notices one who has a scroll in his hand. And our question has to be, what is this scroll? I don't know if we can answer it completely. We don't have, I don't think we have enough information to be absolutely 
100%, this is what it is. So let me give you all the possibilities that, of what it is. Okay? In the ancient Near East, that's by the, again, if you're unfamiliar, A-N-E means ancient Near East. So we're talking about the culture of the Jews at the time of this writing, the uh, Mediterranean world at the time of this writing. How did they use Biblion or scroll? And did, how did they have things that might have writing on the inside and on the outside and be sealed? And the key is in his, is studying history, the sealing of it. There are documents that we know that had certain sealings uh, that were done that way. Used for wills, title deeds, contracts, slave documents, marriage contact, uh, contracts, rental agreements, usually were written, rolled from both sides or from one side, and they had seals on them. And this is how you're going to keep your document that you agreed on for your marriage or you have the title to a slave or this is your will that you're giving to your kids. And so who was able to break this seal in the future? Somebody, well, in the, in the ancient world. Whoever, the heir could break it if it's a will or somebody with authority if you're dealing with a contract. And so that, that's a broad term. The writing was done primarily on one side when they would roll this up. And we have documents like this. We have records like this. And once they sealed it, then what they would do is they would write to describe on the outside what it was and who had the authority to open it. Could be part of the writing. Um, it's very similar to the... Oh, mine doesn't have it. Um, Somebody have just a without a book cover. I'm looking for a book that just has something on the outside. Anybody have? Okay, hold, hold it up. Does it? What, what does it say on the outside? Okay, okay. That Holy Bible. What version did you say? It's, it, def, it identifies it. Okay. Um, so you got identification. What's on the inside? A Holy Bible that's an ESV. And so the scrolls, the writing on the outside, would be about that succinct. They're like a book cover. And so it give you an idea what's on the inside of the thing. The seals then would only be opened by somebody who was qualified, typically. Um, unless you're talking about crooks, which, you know, or scam artists, uh, that would happen. So Ezekiel, by the way, sees a similar scroll. If you jump back into the book of Ezekiel, he writes, Now when I looked, there was a hand stretched out to me, and he, this is one of his visions of heaven. And he says, And behold, a scroll of the book was in it. Then he spread it before me, and there was writing on the inside, the outside, written on it were the lamentations, mournings, and woe. Some think this is a possibility of the very same scroll. Why would he say it's one filled with lamentations, mourning, and woe? If it's the same thing. What's that? Yeah, because when he opens the seal, what hap- uh, the first seal, the second seal, the third seal, what's ha- what happens in the scroll chapters 6, 7, 8 in the book of Revelation? It's the judgments. So there's a possibility, again, we can't be certain, but there's a strong possibility of that. The scroll could be one of these items. It could be the title deed to the universe. Okay, God has a title deed. Who is able to take this? It could be God's contract that, you know, like he gave a, a rainbow. This could be what I have promised to do for the universe. What has he promised to do for the entire universe? He's promised to, to redeem the entire universe. Romans 8, what is creation doing right now, waiting for its redemption? It's groaning, waiting for its redemption. Okay, and so this might be, here's, his, here's what's going to ultimately be the experience. 
that it could be written. It could be the job description of the one who would redeem the universe. When I'm saying redeem the universe, I'm talking about the individual who can come to this world, set up God's kingdom on earth, and redeem creation and, all, and have the ability to redeem all creatures. That's a vast job description. Okay, and so it could be, and he called him, the one who could do that was the Son of Man. What title do we normally think of when we think Old Testament, the one who's anointed to do all that? What is the common Old Testament title? Messiah. Okay, Um, it could have that plan of God, how he's going to bring ultimate redemption. And so, um, you know, how he's going to overcome evil and overcome... So if you have all of this in mind, that this is somehow what every creature in heaven is thinking, that this is God's redemptive plan. This is how it's going to carry out. Somebody has to be able to take it, grab it, and carry it out. So John is seeing this and coming down to the point that this is a very important uh, document that is talking about having to do with the ultimate redemption of all mankind in the universe. So with that in mind, here we go. It was written, And I heard or saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, loud enough that everything, every, everything in this scene, he yells out, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? Basically, come forth. Whoever you are, any of you, any of you here, can you bring about redemption for all of mankind, all of the universe? And what's the initial reaction? There's no one. There's no one. What does heaven do at this moment? There's deafening silence. All of a sudden we have no man in heaven nor on earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. Just... Nobody's qualified was the first reaction. Which means what for all of mankind in the universe? Damnation, devastation. For how long? Yeah, there's no recovery, no hope without a person able to do this. And so you have this loud voice that's hearing and no response. And he's asking, who has the divine power to take this from God? He's asking, who has the ability to put God's plan into action? He's asking, who has the power to defeat Satan? He's basically, who can wipe out sin in the universe? He's, so he's saying, who has the ability to reverse the curse? He's, to whom can God give the power and control of the universe? And John's response? What do, what do you have in verse 4? When, when there's nobody stepping forth, what's John's response? I wept. Is that all you have? Do you have a description of his weeping? Okay, much? He is, he is devastated. He's premature. He's, he's kind of like us. How long do we think we have to answer somebody's question? Right away. We, we're quick. He's quick to say, there's nobody. And his response is, we're without hope. We're damned and doomed for. And then all of a sudden Jesus comes forth. Wow. Wow. 
Okay, we got to stop. We got to stop at this point. Isn't this a fascinating section? Wow. Wow. 